Welcome to episode 17 of the EKB podcast. In this episode, we have with us Elizabeth Brink, a trauma-informed body-based coach for neurodivergent people. She partners with her clients as they build life strategies with greater self-acceptance and body awareness. Neurodiversity refers to variation in the human brain regarding sociability, learning, attention, mood, and other mental functions in a non-pathological sense. In this episode, Elizabeth and I talk about societal limitations for neurodivergent people, what it means, and how we can act with more inclusion and awareness. We talk about the need and importance of channeling the strengths of individuals instead of stereotyping and grouping people together. This conversation with Elizabeth is insightful and educational and I hope it inspires you to have greater conversations on the subject and offer support to neurodivergent people from different backgrounds in your own unique ways. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, uh, for agreeing to speak with us. I am so excited about this conversation. Um, It is something that's extremely new to me, but excited to learn and excited to share with our audience as well. Um, My first question is about neurodivergent people. Um, Firstly, we really appreciate all the work that you're doing uh, to encourage and support neurodivergent people from different backgrounds. Um, Could you tell us what a, a little bit about neurodivergence itself and the different cognitive spectrums that fall under it. Yeah, so thank you for having me. This is a delight. Um, so there really is kind of this thought that it's it's one big pool of things that like there is this neurotype, this brain type that is um, that includes a lot of overlapping presentations. So within the neurodivergent um, kind of grouping you would have like ADHD, attention deficit disorder. You'd have the autism spectrum, um, sensory processing, sleep disorders, um, OCD, and then learning differences like dyslexia, dyscalculia. And so within that, when you look at the presentations of all of these things, there's a lot of overlap. Mm -hmm. So for example, you know, people who have ADHD and people who have OCD both seem to struggle with rumination, with like getting stuck on thoughts and having them kind of go over and over and over. Um, so it's not always an obvious, well, which came first. The other thing is that a lot of the people with these different conditions, as they're referred to, though I don't see them as conditions, but um, a lot of people also have PTSD. And so they've had, you know, likely they've had traumatic experiences, even in just how they've been treated, because the world expects us to um, perform in a certain way from infancy, really. And um, or they, they have some generational impacts of the way in which their parents and their grandparents and great grandparents, you know, several generations back have also likely been neurodivergent and parented out of that. And so perhaps their nervous system is really sensitive to certain kinds of input and restrictions, 
because of the way that they've been treated, but also because of the way generations before them were treated. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very complicated and mysterious. I think truly, I think what we do know for sure is that people have these experiences where they feel like they are struggling with things that society as a whole has determined are the ideal ways of operating. Mm -hmm. And so we know for sure people are experiencing real challenges, real suffering. What we don't know for absolute certain is exactly what's going on in their particular body, in their brain, because we are all so uniquely different. And because neuroscience There's a lot of research that they cannot do on live human beings. And so a lot of it is also modeled after research that they've done on mice and rats. And so there's like a lot of assumptions and correlations that are, that are there that, you know, we're pretty complex beings. So, Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I would say this, this whole realm of like neurodivergent people, I think most people who would identify with that label have likely received a diagnosis of some kind mm-hmm. or feel like they're qualified to receive one and, and they may not care. They may self identify in that way, which I think is fine. Does yeah. that answer your question? Yeah, it does. I mean, I definitely want to go into various aspects of what you just said. Um, but before we do that, I wanted to know how you started doing this kind of work and what led you to it? Yeah, so I was diagnosed with ADHD as a child um, in the late 80s, which was really, you know, it was a newer kind of trend at that point, newish. It wasn't new, but, um, and, you know, my mom at the time just felt like, I didn't, my grades were not matching what she felt like intellectually I was capable of. Mm -hmm. And so she had me assessed. um, And, and I spent some time exploring, you know, some ways in which to manage schoolwork basically. And then life got complicated and it kind of fell off the radar. And when I was around 30, I was working helping out um, a really prominent, one of the original ADHD coaches, Nancy Rady. And I was working for her and I was observing her working with clients and it just started to click. Like, I think, I think I still have that. Cause when I was little, they said I'd outgrow it. So I didn't, (laughs) (laughs) I did not outgrow my brain. (laughs) So at that point, I was like, oh, interesting. And I began to re-explore it. Now that was like over a decade ago. And I, you know, in the last three or four years, finally came to a point in my career where I was able to pivot into coaching full-time. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's kind of how I got here was that it was partly my story and partly that as I've had this long career I was constantly coming into contact with people who were struggling in the workplace, who were struggling at home and who needed a sounding board and needed to problem solve in a safe place where they wouldn't be judged. And so a lot of colleagues over the years, even bosses um, would confide in me. And I, I found the shift into coaching, like very natural. It was like, oh yes, this is Mm. what I've been doing uh, for most of my career. In addition to other, you know, 
job responsibilities. Uh, so that that's kind of how I came into it. And I, I, um, yeah, I, it's kind of a dream come true. Like, I can't believe that I, that I get to do this for work. It's like kind of amazing. Yeah, yeah it is amazing. What um, consists of the coaching that you do in, and you earlier said that people come to you if they're diagnosed with the condition um, and then you kind of do your coaching sessions with them. What what does that kind of mean? Like, what is the kind of coaching that you provide? Yeah, so it's um, so ADHD coaching, neurodivergent coaching is what I'm trained in, but it's also general life coaching with this like neurodivergent piece. It includes, you know, helping my clients understand their nervous system, their brain, their way of doing things. So building self-acceptance, being able to actually really partner with themselves and not be constantly battling against their intuitive, instinctive ways of doing things. Um, It's a partnership. So it really it really is kind of a give and take where we set goals and the client really comes to the sessions with, this is what I need to work through this week. Maybe it's a conflict in their life relationally, or, you know, maybe it's um, a system in their home. Like I can't get my laundry cleaned or Mm -hmm. I can't keep my dishes clean and it's bothering me. Okay. So we'll unpack what's going on. So it's a lot of reflective space because in coaching, at least where I'm trained, um, by Denslow Brown and Nancy Reedy, the idea of coaching is you as the client are the expert on you. And so I'm here to ask questions, get curious, notice where, excuse me, maybe there are contradictions or things coming up and help you to bring out the wisdom that's already there for yourself. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times neurodivergent people will struggle with ordering their thoughts and opinions internally. And when we can either speak or write them or externalize them, they kind of order and we can look at them and think about them differently. So coaching is a great space for that, where it's like, I'm, I don't have a laundry system that's perfect for everybody. I'm not going to tell you how to set timers to make sure you do the dishes. Mm-hmm. There are lots of ideas out there. It's more about understanding you. So it's like, getting to know you at like the core levels. And then you're able to go to a place where you're like, I'm going to try to manage my house with this. I'm going to let go of thinking that's going to be perfect. I'm going to hire somebody to help me with this if I can or whatever. Like you're going to be able to problem solve your stuff a lot easier if you know timers don't work for me. I don't like when people do this. I prefer to do things on the weekends or early in the mornings. And as you get to know yourself better and better, life has less friction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's there's so much battle with what society tells you and how you're supposed to live life. That mm-hmm. that's just like the first layer where you're kind of like, okay, so I first have to get rid of that mindset and then kind of dig deeper into yourself to kind of figure out what works for you and what doesn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so there's so much conversation um, and an awareness about it, but there is definitely a lot more uh, that needs to happen. Um, I myself was 
not very exposed to it and I had to do some reading and I recently came about it. Um, but I, and I sometimes feel like, you know, this lack of awareness is definitely a huge problem and uh, it's something that we need to focus on, which is why I wanted us to have this conversation as well. Um, but how do we actually, so the main main thing is the the shame aspect of it, right? Like why why do people feel shameful of it firstly, but also why do we treat people like that differently? Mm. Aren't we all individually very, very different that we should all be treated with respect and with, or kind of find a way to uh, understand that person better so we can, you know, uh, channel that form of whatever it is. I don't mm-hmm. know if your question makes sense. Yes, <laughs> it does. I mean, it, it's 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 more of like this huge topic, right? It, yeah. This idea that you know we we are born into these systems that require us to perform, and and then as we are unable to perform in these expected ways or these defined ideal ways, we we are responded to. Uh, by other people are responding to us in ways that are creating this like cognitive dissonance, like what is wrong with me? Mm-hmm. And that can happen even in infancy. You can have people who, um, you know, there's a therapist, Terry Matlin, she talks about how, you know, even as the infant is potentially more sensory seeking or crying more or whatever it is, you will have other people responding to the parents of this baby. And this baby might have a neurodivergent brain and need different kinds of sensory input or be very sensitive to certain kinds of sensory input. And other people will say, oh, goodness, like, when are they going to sleep all night? When, when do you put them down? Why do you hold them all the time? Right. So from infancy, the child and the parents are being stigmatized potentially And this is shifting how the parent is interacting with the child, right? Like the the parent may start to feel some panic or very deep concern, and that might shift how they are attaching and nurturing them. So like from a very young age, we pick up on these little nuances. Our nervous system is so amazing and it, it is constantly seeking safety. So if we are feeling like as a toddler, or a preschool child, you know, if we're five years old and we want to explore, we want to be independent and every decision we make, we get in trouble for, or, you know, there's some consequence. Like, why would you do that? Why did you do that? Come back. You weren't thinking. Why didn't you think? Right. And so very quickly, that child is like, I can't think I can't make decisions. I should just wait and do what I'm told, or I'm going to do whatever I want. And I'm going to like, I'm going to engage in all these really risk-taking behaviors. I'm going to jump off the roof of the house or whatever. (laughs) And so you get this pattern. And once you enter into any kind of schooling or any kind of system Mm -hmm. beyond society, right? These internal institutions, it just starts to perpetuate even further because now you're you're out of sight from your caregiver and the rest of the world is now telling you, sit still be quiet. Don't move your feet around so much. Um, You know, sit down, stand up, do this, do that. And that environment for a neurodivergent kid 
is excruciating. Mm -hmm. It's really painful to have to engage in a classroom discussion. If you are struggling, being asked to read out loud, if you have dyslexia and reading creates a lot of anxiety for you, these are very traumatic experiences for a lot of kids. And what happens is over time, they just assume it's their fault. My own therapist says like all kids assume all things are their fault. And so they're like, it's me, it's my fault. So the shame is just building from early childhood. And the other piece of that, which you asked was about others interaction with them. And if you imagine them in a classroom setting or any kind of social setting, all of the other children, including the neurodivergent kids are observing the way this one child is being handled. So they're all internalizing. This is the way to handle people who can't behave. And this is how I deserve to be treated if I don't behave. Mm -hmm. We just continue to perpetuate these systems of oppression where we are in essence, we are disciplining the one. And in doing that, in the witnessing of others, we're also training them to, to feel this certain way about people who behave like this. So if you can't sit still and pay attention and stop talking, then you get to adulthood and you're in a conference or in a meeting and you behave like that. Other kids who watched kids like you get disciplined are going to feel annoyed that yes. you don't still in meetings, right? Because they, they've internalized this expectation too of like control your body. Mm-hmm. So it is this like very difficult thing. And then you have caregivers who are just desperate for their children to be safe and accepted. Yeah. So they cause harm, you know, not intentionally, not maliciously. Sometimes, sometimes they do, but there are a lot of caregivers out there who are just want you to fit in, want you to be okay. And all of that, then you get to adulthood. And if nobody identified that you have an interest-driven brain or that you're creative and you get to adulthood, chances are you will have anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And you'll present that to some caregiver and they will say, oh, you have anxiety, you have depression. Well, yes, of course you do. Of course you do, right? So then you're still not being seen for the fact that, you're just different. You just operate differently. Your body and brain move through the world in a really unique way. And in a way that these structures are just not, they're not designed for that. So with the awareness that people slowly are, you know, uh, getting, how do you propose or how do you think that we're going to make these systemic changes or like mindset switches? I know this is a very large question, but like I'm trying to see in, you know, try to understand in this society that is so defined where you're trying so hard to change certain things, like Mm -hmm. even right from school to getting a job to living in a family, like all of these, like you can see problems right from when you wake up to when you sleep or through the night even, right? So how, how do we... How do we make that huge change? Oh, I wish I knew. I mean, I think it's like, I think it's it's a war on all fronts. You know, it's this idea that every individual who becomes aware of this for themselves or for a loved one, learning about it and, and not 
pathologizing it, not just mm-hmm. saying you're disordered. Oh, you have this thing. Let's just, let's just fix it with medication, which I am not anti, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm not anti-medication, but I don't think it's the answer. I think it is how a lot of people need to cope and to manage life in a world that doesn't work for them. And so, you know, rather than jumping through all these specific hoops, saying, okay, what's going on in this classroom? What's going on with my child's teacher? Or what's happening with my loved one's boss and with this particular team that they're a part of? And understanding that there is a structure we're always operating within that is not at all interested in us really changing it, Mm -hmm. right? It's not at all interested in power shifting. And in order for us to really say, everybody here brings value and everybody does things differently. And that means that some people may not get their work done when they said they would get it done and that we're not going to punish that. And some people are going to get their work done early and we're not going to reward that. You know, these kinds of changes, it's not just the individual like that is that's kind of what we're forced to do because society is refusing to turn things. And so the individual is forced to say, "Okay, well, I'm going to just take back my agency. I'm going to I'm going to learn about myself and I'm going to do this my way within these the confines of these structures and but that's not enough because the people who have access to doing that kind of work of learning themselves and you know people who can access therapy and coaching and community supports are privileged so the real the you know the next thing is that like out of your own healing and self understanding you would then be turning toward the community at large the society at large and saying how am i engaging in the marketplace? How am I engaging in um, in society at these structural levels that are challenging the status quo around, you know, diversity and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in- inclusion? You know, if I need to stand in a meeting, I don't want to not be invited to meetings because I fidget. Yeah. I want to be, you know, I want that to just be something about me. I'll sit in the back. I'll sit off to the side. I don't care. Right. In fact, I'd probably prefer that. Um, so these are the things where, you know, I think these systems often say like, just fix yourself. Oh, that's a problem for you. Go fix yourself. And that's all well and good, except that that doesn't then benefit the greater whole and the greater whole can't all go fix themselves. So we yeah. have to, we have to be interested in both. I mean, I think you understand that because of the work you do, that like you can't just as an individual decide you're going to be this kind of consumer. You have to also care about the kind of consumer that other people have access to being. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So with this way that um, neurodivergent people are treated or not understood, how can we um allow them or make them feel welcome and safe to kind of accept themselves and also explore their own natural way of being. Mm, that's a beautiful question. 
I just wish everyone would ask that question of every person in their lives, you know, neurodivergent or not, like what makes you feel welcome and safe? Like, how can I support, how can this group or this organization support you exploring and understanding yourself better in this context? That would be beautiful, right? That would be really transformative. I think that's a big part of it. It's just being curious. We're so quick to stigmatize and judge other people. And rather than making assumptions about why somebody did or did not do something, can we approach it with curiosity and openness? Can we challenge ourselves first rather than just challenging them? Why are you behaving like this? Why would you do it that way? That doesn't make sense to me. And instead challenging myself, why would they do it that way? Huh, I'm curious about that. Mm -hmm. Maybe I could learn from them. Maybe they know something I don't know. This would require an amount of humility that, you know, the marketplace doesn't necessarily encourage, right? Because there's competitive advantage at play that makes it very difficult for systems and individuals to be like, oh, maybe I could learn something from you. It's like, we're all holding so tightly to our expertise and like, this is my lane, this is my thing. (laughs) And so we'd have to be more open to you know, interconnectedness to understanding that we are interconnected. So if my friend or my colleague or neighbor is struggling, you know, if my neighbor is constantly forgetting to take their trash out on trash day and, and I just am annoyed and like, Oh gosh, they forgot their trash again. They forgot their trash again. It's piling up. It's piling up. You know, at what point do I say they're having a hard time? remembering mm-hmm. or getting that task done, could I ask if there's something I could do to help or could I just help? Could I just say we are connected to one another and you being in a good and healthy place is good for me and it's good for all of the community too. And so it matters that I notice and that I take care where I can. The tricky thing is that a lot of, especially white people, and I say this with because I am white. So I say this with like as much gentle kindness as is possible. You know, we can, we can tend to swoop in and assume, oh, let me help you fix that. And Mm. it may not be an issue for that other person. It might be your problem. So if you're noticing somebody's fidgety in a meeting or they're missing deadlines, rather than assuming that they are actually even bothered by this thing, that you're bothered by first finding out how they're doing, how are they feeling about how things are going in their job or at home. And if they identify that there's an issue asking permission, is that something you'd like help brainstorming around and not just doing this swooping in and being like, I have the perfect system or here, let me just do this Mm -hmm. for you. Right. And then you've got this person who's like, oh, I didn't even know that that was something wrong with me. And now I feel even worse. Worse. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like um, even like in families, there are some people that are just so like you do have to have a high level of awareness and understanding Mm -hmm. of people and situations to really understand that that person is different and that person is behaving different. But a lot of times that doesn't happen. Like in families, it's 
very hard for somebody to get out of their own heads and you know think that okay this person needs extra you know empathy or not even or just need to be treated slightly differently like don't give certain things attention and give certain things attention and things like that how how what do you think of that i mean the younger generations are starting to push that out right like i think when we look back at so i'm in my 40s when i look at my parents generation the baby boomers and i look and i mean these are like american generation titles but when i look back you know into generations that were in the midst of world wars and things like that you know they're surviving they are making sure that mouths are fed and heads are counted and you know everybody's here and we our basic basic needs are being met and so this idea of like attuning to each individual person and really you know, really giving space to them being unique is a newer concept in human interaction. It's not brand new because people have done this like throughout time, but this emphasis on how do we actually notice the individual is a newer idea. And I think that the challenge is you again, have this zoom out, zoom in challenge of now, if I, if I go to this one individual then what happens to the system, right? Oh, well, then that might force the whole system to change. So like if a parent notices that, or a primary caregiver notices that one child will never eat this one food, will never eat this one food. And it is what they have three times a week. So do we just never eat that food again? Do we make them a separate food and then everybody wants a separate food? There's all these implications mm-hmm. to individualizing things. Do we expect that person to just figure it out themselves? Do we, you know, and so there's like all this partnering that has to happen for us to be able to say, you have different needs and I can try to meet them. And at some point you are a part of a community where you also have to learn that your needs can't always come above and beyond and first everybody else's. And so it's this like really delicate dance, I think. And these systems at higher levels, once you get to like workplaces and government structures, they definitely are not going to spend the money and the time to have all these different versions of how people can function. They create this, oh, this is the fastest way to make the most amount of money. So we should all do this. And Mm -hmm. that's where you end up with a lot of people out of work, really. Mm. Yeah, I think it's the smaller companies that are trying to be more inclusive in in a lot of ways, just because they're a lot more agile um, and are more aware for sure, because there are a lot Mm -hmm. of companies that are now kind of cropping up that are becoming more conscious as businesses. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's promising for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Because, you know, the idea that if I, if I cater to every individual person, I am going to pay the price is a fallacy. It's like, if, if people are being cared for well, and they feel supported to resource themselves when possible, everybody benefits. They get to work in ways or they get to operate in ways within community and family structures that 
actually feel, you know, purposeful to them and inspiring to them. And that then creates a space where they feel more accepted and also where they're, you know, the beauty of who they are can actually really be shown and that benefits all of us. But if, if we are only focused on money, it's going to be really hard for us to open ourselves up, even in our families to encouraging people to really be individuals, because we know once they get into the marketplace, they're going to get shoved back down into these boxes and they're not going to know how to cope. And Mm -hmm. so it's this very, I think it's a really complicated problem that a lot of people can't or don't want to address. And we're doing the best we can to individually encourage each other to understand ourselves and connect with other people who think like you do so that you feel more quote normal. There's no Mm -hmm. normal, but so that you feel more understood and you don't feel like you're wrong and bad. Um, And yet these systems aren't necessarily agile enough, depending on the structures, right? They're like huge cruise ships and trying to get them to turn is going to take a really long time. I actually find that quite exciting because I feel like we've not challenged um, the norm firstly, but we've not, you know, kind of channeled the these their strengths. And I feel like as a business owner, if you're able to do that, to channel their strengths, I feel like there's only good things that can come out of it because yeah. by channeling the wrong things, then you're doing yourself harm or your business harm, right? Like, I feel like you can create a lot more if you're able to do that. And of course, Mm -hmm. if you, you know, uh, spend that time and have that awareness to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, people who have said like caring about how your employees are doing and taking care of people actually makes your business more lucrative, makes it stronger and it's just like, it's such a hard sell to people who are just like, that sounds hard Mm -hmm. or they individually, you know, when you think about organizations and systems, they're made of people. So all these individual people come from all their own experiences. Some of the people causing the most harm and the most oppression themselves are probably neurodivergent or right. And so they have all this internalized ableism, internalized racism, internalized that they don't even acknowledge that is actually driving their behavior, but they likely don't even belong on that side of the fence. If there's going to be two sides, you know, so that's also interesting because if we can get them to acknowledge and celebrate themselves you know, the people in power are the ones that can actually start to help influence some of this stuff too. Or just as the collective, we have to rise up together, which is proving to be a challenging thing for humanity. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Um, You shared something last year on Twitter um, that there is a connection between neurodivergence and fatigue. Uh, Could you tell us more about this connection and how one can take care of themselves when they meet such fatigue? Yeah. So all of, uh, yes, it's a great question. All the things that we've been talking about, you know, operating in these systems and trying to pay your bills or keep your relationships 
functioning, right, is so exhausting. It requires Mm -hmm. so much energy. And so a lot of neurodivergent people struggle with spending time resting, not just even like sleeping and napping, but actually resting in creative ways, resting in spending time playing, going and doing things that are fun or that make them feel like life is worth living. And so what we find is that that fatigue over time, you know, is chronic stress on your body and creates actual health implications. Um, at some point, sometimes it doesn't take very long for that. And so, you know, I think the real challenge for neurodivergent people is in order for us to take care of ourselves, we do have to, we do have to push back on some of these systems. And some of us have maybe more trauma and more difficult experiences in their past doing that. And they are not going to push back. They are just going to spend and overspend their energy. And, mm-hmm. and others of us might have the, the will and the power and the, the voice, the energy still to push back. Um, and, and maybe we're too busy or we haven't noticed, right? Because we can get really pulled into all kinds of things and not notice that, you know, three weeks have gone by. <laughs> and so, um, so I think it takes a certain level of, you know, community awareness and encouragement to slow down. There's a, um, there is somebody on Instagram. Um, I'm not sure if they are on Twitter too, but they are the nap ministry and mm-hmm. sleeping the nap ministry. Um, beautiful, beautiful work. And, you know, just this idea of pushing back on the status quo and resting. And I think there's just so much value in learning to connect creatively with yourself or just letting your imagination be a part of your day-to-day life. Um, And so I think that a lot of that can lead to, you know, offsetting the fatigue. Yeah. But at the same time, we're working really long days and a lot of us have challenges with sleep. And so if we're not actually physically getting enough sleep, then again, we're overspending in energy every day. We're not getting enough recovery at night. We're definitely not getting recovery throughout our day. And it, we just, you're in a deficit fast. So I would say like any small way that you find yourself exhaling. So if you mm-hmm. find yourself like, <sighs> right, that's an indicator that something is there for you that might be restorative might make you feel rested, might make you feel a little bit like you can pay yourself back into that bank of energy. So that could look like um, giving yourself permission to just like enjoy a show, enjoy a meal that you're eating. It can look like, you know, savoring a few moments of quiet between meetings and just letting your eyes close and just sit still for a minute, which is kind of hard for us. But these are the kinds of things like our nervous system really likes, but also noticing them in little ways like that will lead your nervous system to want more and to find more opportunities for it versus 
forcing yourself into every day, I'm going to take a break at this time and I'm going to do this meditation and then I'm going to have this tea. And like, don't do that to yourself. You're going to create more stress. It's more about where are the moments where there's already little gaps of time where you can just let that time be yours. Just let it be yours. You know, one of the things I do in between clients sometimes is I have some stuff set up over here with um, watercolors, which I'm not, I, whatever for, we're all artists, we're all creative, but it's (laughs) it's watercolors. So they're not like high quality. Um, But sometimes in between clients, I will just sit here for even just a few seconds and I will just like do some watercolor thing on the page and let my nervous system just kind of connect to a different lane for a minute. And that is my little tiny way of battling that all of my energy is going to be sucked up and taken by work. It's like, no, I can, I can take it. And then, you know, if somebody cancels a session, I might be like, you know what? I want to listen to that new music and I'm going to sit here and paint for 30 minutes because I've been doing this little bit. My body's like, I kind of want to do it longer. I want to be there longer. So I think just being really gentle with yourself and saying like, what if I could, what if I could take a break? What if I could pick something on my list and say, this one can wait, Mm -hmm. this one can wait. And I can have a minute to myself. I love that so much. I feel like you just sharing these inputs and insights almost makes me feel like I can give myself permission to actually take that break and step back, really. Because sometimes you need to be told that it's okay because you're told so many times or like it's ingrained in your head that it's not okay. You have to sit at a desk nine to five. (laughs) So it's hard sometimes to like give yourself permission, but just being constantly told that you can do it. Something Uh happens. Some switch happens. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. When I started doing this watercolor thing, I, I was forcing myself to actually get out of my work chair and I work from home. So I was forcing myself to sit in a different chair and, or go to a different like surface. And that was really helpful because it just forced my whole body to notice we're not at our desk. We're not working Mm. right now. Whereas I think sometimes I know when I was working in an organization's office, I would be on quote break at my desk and there would be nowhere else to go. And so it would be hard for me to feel like I was actually getting a break. And I would just sit on the floor. I would get out of my chair. And so I just was like, I need to not feel like I'm like in that position. Right. And so just changing your posture, like when you go to, you know, go to the restroom or go get something to drink and just coming back and saying, I'm going to wait to sit back down in my chair. I'm going to like, let myself linger here for just a second. Um, it just noticing where there is space and then noticing what's possible in that amount of space, because a lot is possible in like 30 to 60 seconds, a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thankfully. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes that's all we have. (laughs) Amazing. Um, Can you share with us and, you know, our audience, your um, Instagram handle, your website, as well as if you have any resources that you think we should definitely kind of look into, whether it's podcasts or books, we'd love to hear that. Yes. So um, my website is thriving sister coaching. 
Brink.com. And my Instagram is Coach Elizabeth Brink. Um, my Twitter is Coach Elizabeth B, because it was too long. Um, <laughs> and so um, you can find me. I'm on Instagram mostly, but you can find me kind of all over the place. Um, I also help, I, I co-lead a community of individuals who identify as neurodivergent, as women, femme, non-binary, called the ADHD Enclave. You don't have to have ADHD to be there, um, but that's also a great place where we can connect. Um, And as far as other resources, so the Enclave is a great resource because there are a lot of people there who are also learning. We, um, my colleague, whose name is Liz, we have the same name, but (laughs) She and I write and we we teach and we offer special events in that community. So there's a lot of learning opportunities there as well. Um, in terms of other things to learn and resources, I would say that rather than focusing so much on learning about your neurodivergent brain or way of doing things, that it would be helpful if people would start to learn about their nervous system and learn about how your nervous system might be interacting in certain environments or in with certain people or in certain habit ways that you can start to notice because that's going to provide you with like really immediate information that's going to help you not feel so overwhelmed, not feel so stressed, noticing like, oh, I feel stressed and, and frustrated. And rather than up in my head saying something's wrong with me and I need a new system, noticing it in your body and shifting toward what can I do to like get back to a place where I feel safe and grounded, right? Is going to help you cope much better in your day-to-day than just understanding like mm-hmm. I I am interest driven. I right. So anything um you know anything around somatic experiencing or um polyvagal theory, some things around the vagus nerve. This is the kind of stuff that I say a lot of neurodivergent people would really benefit from learning about and connecting to themselves in terms of managing how they feel day to day. Um, Yeah. And then, and then I think, you know, there are tons of resources and books out there and podcasts. One ADHD podcast that I really like is translating ADHD. And, um, so definitely recommend that. And then there's another one called neurodivergent narratives and Sandra is also on Instagram N D narratives. Um, and there might be a dot in there, but Sandra Coral, and, um, she does a great job of, of exploring all kinds of topics around intersectional neurodivergent gender race, all these things that are really just like good, thoughtful work around this stuff. So those are, those are like my, my top picks. Amazing. Amazing. I think we'll definitely link to all of this in the description so people can just have access to all of that. Um, But thank you so much, Elizabeth, for having this conversation with us. Uh, I learned so much from you. Uh, And I'm definitely looking forward to learning more by following you, your work and all that you're doing. If you enjoyed this conversation, don't forget to subscribe to the EKB podcast, a space for discussion on living meaningful and fuller lives each day. The EKB podcast is a property edited and produced by the team at EKB.